Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am on the line with Hillary Hunter. Hillary is a IBM fellow and director of the Accelerated Cognitive Infrastructure Group at IBM's TJ Watson Research Center. Hillary, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you so much. Very excited to be here. Uh, I'm excited to have you on the show as well. Folks won't know this until I tell them, but we had an opportunity to meet just a few weeks ago in New York City at the NYU at a reception held in conjunction with the NYU Future Labs event. And it was certainly great to meet you in person and even better to have an opportunity to you know, get you on the line and dig into some of the work that you've been up to. Yeah, it was a pleasure meeting you there. And it was certainly a, a really interesting event and a great opportunity to see some of the exciting things going on in the New York area and AI and AI is just exploding everywhere. But it's a pleasure to be here on your podcast. I look forward to our discussion. Awesome. So why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about how you, your background and how you got involved in artificial intelligence? Yeah, it's interesting. I like to say that that AI really has exploded for two reasons, one being the amount of data and especially publicly available data sets, and the second being the compute. And I come from a background technically that's really a mix of both those things. And AI has been an opportunity to bring together a lot of different things that I've done in prior technical work and a lot of different things done by members of my team in kind of prior technical lives before getting into AI. So I come from a systems perspective, from a hardware perspective. I was an electrical engineer by training. Go double E. And so, yep, I was a double E. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, that background is kind of where I'm coming from and approaching, you know, these problems that we're trying to tackle in AI. And I bring to the table, you know, background in performance, a background in data movement and systems, and both are proving to be uh, really fruitful for getting some of the grand challenge kind of scale problems done that we're facing today in AI. Awesome. And have you spent most of your career at IBM? I have, yeah. So I got my PhD at University of Illinois and started at IBM in 2005. And I've been with IBM Research since then. Fantastic. And have you been working on, uh, in the same group, working on accelerated cognitive infrastructure, or have you done kind of evolved to that, this particular position? Yeah, this position has evolved. You know, we uh, really ramped up our efforts around accelerated computing a number of years ago. Prior to that, I was working on things related to processor design and memory technologies. And it's interesting because, again, the memory relates to the data movement, relates to, you know, feeding the AI compute and feeding the accelerator. So it's all kind of come together in a really nice way. Great. And your group recently published some really interesting research on essentially scaling deep learning performance using distributed distributed techniques. Uh, that was one of the big things that I wanted to spend some time talking about in this interview Can you give us an overview of that research? Yeah, we were really excited by what we're able to publish. We're calling it the Power AI DDL, or Distributed Deep Learning Capability. And basically what we showed is that we were able to create a framework independent, so independent from TensorFlow or CAFE or PyTorch or your favorite 
way of doing deep learning. We were able to create a framework-independent communication library that achieves close to optimal, very, very close to optimal, um, up to 95% scaling efficiency. So what this meant for us is that we were able to use lots of GPUs together very, very efficiently. And we were able to use those mechanisms to train a neural network, to train a ResNet to the highest published accuracy on a really hard problem. And we were also able to beat what had been shown as a record of around an hour or 66 minutes on a smaller neural network and a smaller problem. And so we really were able to show that through hardware software integration, we were able to have world-class AI capabilities. And for us, this really, you know, kind of signaled a change in the productivity curve for deep learning because Mm -hmm. most of the open source today just kind of handles a single node worth of performance. So you're kind of stuck then. You can have two GPUs, four GPUs, maybe eight. But scaling out to many, many servers has been you know, really big challenge. And the more servers and the more hardware you can use for a problem, the faster you get that work done and the more productive you are. Now, that last point might be one that's worth underscoring. If you look at a framework like TensorFlow, there's, you know, as part of the open source TensorFlow, there's a distributed TensorFlow, but that's more useful for scaling across GPUs than it is across servers. Is that correct? So there is a version of distributed TensorFlow and and what we really are kind of looking at in, in that versus the DDL capabilities is the extent of scalability and ultimately the productivity of the server. So the default distributions in TensorFlow haven't been shown to be able to use as many as 256 GPUs as far as I'm aware and based on our you know own internal studies. And so it's, you know, there are X factors to be had with every, you know, extra set of servers that you can add, you get the work done faster. And also we've shown that our communication patterns and communication overheads are really close to optimal. And so the other things that are out there appear to be less efficient. And so that means at the end, a longer time to solution. Okay. And the 256 GPUs that you are running was across how many systems? Yeah. So we ran across 64 servers and um, we were using the Pascal P100 GPUs. The work that we did was right before, right on the cusp of Volta coming out as the very latest GPUs. And I like to always kind of describe, you know, why this is a hard problem because the GPUs are so fast that they all learn very quickly. And so if you think of there being 256 kind of learners in the system, the hard part is keeping everybody synced up. (laughs) And that Mm -hmm. process of keeping them synced up, it's really critical that that be done with as low latency of a communication as possible. And that's that's really the core of the technology that we showed is, is that the communication time is really, really low. And that enables you then to do fully synchronous training, meaning everyone is updating everyone else with all the information that's being learned, all the weights are you know, being updated as they should after every batch. And that means at the end that you're doing a type of deep learning that as opposed to asynchronous where they're kind of occasionally updating each other in order to lower the communication overhead. When you're able to do fully synchronous, you're able to kind of keep everything moving forward a little bit more predictably, uh, predictably, sorry, and you're able to get a higher accuracy result at the end in general. 
Okay. In introducing this, you said it's called Power AI DDL. For those who aren't familiar with Power AI, what is Power AI and uh, to what extent are the results that you demonstrated here tied to that Power AI architecture? Yeah. So for us, this is very much an effort of hardware and software co-design. Power AI runs on the IBM SC822LC servers. Sorry, actually, S822LC servers. And those servers have two power processors, and they have four GPUs. And everything is connected by doubled up NVLinks. So NVIDIA has this high bandwidth interconnect capability. And we have that high bandwidth connectivity, not just between the GPUs, um, but also back to the host processor. And so that provides extra performance in moving data and moving weight updates and everything in the system. And our communication library also leverages all of that bandwidth to its max and to its full potential. And so when we you know, talk about this whole space of deep learning and what we're doing from a systems perspective and with things like DDL, we're talking about you know, matching the software to fully utilize the hardware capabilities. And for us, this is also a storyline around collaboration between our research division that I actually report in and our product division, our development division, because we were able to actually put this code base out for IBM customers to try and download and try themselves, try DDL on their servers or on the cloud at the same time that we made the publication and the announcement of our leadership deep learning capabilities using this framework. So Power AI is a, it's a download and go set of distributions of frameworks that run on our accelerated servers. And we now have the distributed deep learning capabilities available there as well for customers to try themselves. So we really, from a research perspective, we're very excited about this because it means that we can kind of take this rarefied skill set of distributed deep learning, this kind of grand challenge thing everyone's competing over, and put it in the hands of our customers to go ahead and try out and see what they can do with it on their data with their types of neural networks. And you mentioned that the results that you saw are framework independent. Is is that true in the strictest sense, or is it rather that the software that you wrote was written to adapt to some fixed number of frameworks? So it's pretty true in a strict sense, but let me define strict to make sure we're not talking past (laughs) each other. So, So what DDL is, is it's a communication library. So it lets things in a system talk to each other. We have been able to use that communication library across many different frameworks. What we released already as part of Power AI was our integration into TensorFlow and into CAFE, but we also published results using our integration into Torch, and we have other integrations that we have you know, shown work just fine as well for our internal use currently. And okay. so... It, it, we have shown, I think, at this point, integration into enough frameworks that I'm pretty comfortable saying that, you know, this library can be integrated into pretty much anything that you want. Right, right. Yeah, I think in the context of my question, the, the answer is yes and yes, right? Yes, <laughs> yes and yes. There we go. <laughs> Interesting. And so how does how does this compare to some of the previous and even subsequent work? Like you refer to Facebook 
and Microsoft work in the paper or in the blog posts. Since I think since you posted this, Uber published a open source project called Haravad that seeks to do something similar. Have you are you familiar with that one? Yeah, I am. And that's obviously a great a great result that they put out there and we love seeing all the uh, different efforts that are going on in this space because it really is such an important area for productivity. The Horvod team showed a great set of scaling, scaling experiments with their integration essentially of an MPI. It was open reduce. MPI, right. Mm-hmm. MPI reduce and the nickel libraries into TensorFlow. Mm-hmm. We do believe that our communication topologies are a bit better than what is there. And so the net scaling efficiency will be better. And we look forward to being able to talk about that in a little bit more concrete detail pretty soon here. But I think, you know, it's it's great to see these different efforts toward distributed deep learning happening across different types of frameworks, because ultimately the community needs to have this type of productivity in order for deep learning really to, to take off. For us, though, the positioning of Power AI is really about taking open source and taking the complexity of managing it, of installing it, tuning up the performance, optimizing it for our systems, and then ultimately providing support on it uh, mm-hmm. for our customers. And so, you know, we love to see improvements in, in open source and and much of what's provided in Power AI is, is open source and is based on open source. And then we're, you know, providing improvements on top of that and optimizations on top of that as well. So we want to both take the time to get going with open source way down, which is the just download and go, as well as we want to then be able to provide support and optimizations and improvements that are really significant on top of what's going on in the space. Mm -hmm. In terms of DDL, I'm curious if you can kind of walk through the, the next level of detail and why you know, what are some of the architectural elements that that you feel give it an advantage relative to, you know, other things that one could do in general? Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's two things. There's there's one, the the advantages of the hardware, which are that the GPUs are double NV linked connected to one another and also double NVLink connected back to the host processor. Those features provide performance if you, you know, use them with an appropriate communication topology, which we do do with DDL. And in addition, then DDL at the overall system level, when you're talking about connecting together a bunch of different learners, a bunch of different system nodes, it uses a multi-ring topology, not a single ring, but a multi-ring topology. And what this results in is our ability to use all of the links to the greatest advantage possible. If you do a naive mapping onto a system, or if you have a system with you know, PCIe interconnect, there are gonna be bottlenecks. What we do is kind of maneuver around the bottlenecks and we use all the different bandwidth. So the bandwidth between the GPUs, the bandwidth on a node, the bandwidth getting out to the network, et cetera. We use those to their best possible efficiency. So ideally, you, know, you wanna use all of the hardware and all the interconnect that you have. And software doesn't naturally do that. Um, And so we've kind of taken all that work away from the developer and said, you know, we're going to max out the system. And if you buy the hardware, it's going to work really well because of the software and the way the software is using all the all the the system bandwidths. Mm. When you talk about these rings, where in the system architecture do they exist? Are these at the interconnect level? Are they in memory? Are they someplace else? 
So these are all um, within the different interconnects of the system. Okay. So the they're part of the double MV link that you mentioned? Yep. A part of the double NV link, a part of the connections out in the network, part of the nodes being connected to each other with network connections, that kind of layer. You know, there's another thing we could talk about. You brought up memory. There's another thing that we could talk about, which is the large model support that we do, which is also a feature in Power AI. And that is a situation where you really want to try to use the different pieces of memory in the system. So mm-hmm. if you think of it philosophically with distributed deep learning, we're using all of the, the links in the system, all the network bandwidth, all the bandwidth available in a given system. With large memory support, we're providing an out-of-core capability, meaning a capability of, of accessing other resources, other memory in the system greater than just what the GPU has all by itself. And the way to think about that is, you know, if I have a system, the GPU has a small amount of memory today, about 16 gigabytes, Mm -hmm. but the host processor has a lot more memory, 128 gigabytes or 256 or up to a terabyte these days, right? Mm -hmm. So we provide function that enables people to explore bigger model sizes, bigger data sizes, et cetera. Um, by accessing and using actively all of the memory and not just the GPU's memory in the system. Okay. So generally, I would say our our philosophy is to kind of use all the resources available in the system, you know, and and let the AI developer explore things as bigly, you know, as bigly, as largely, (laughs) as largely, (laughs) and as large as they'd like to go, as big as they'd like to go. And that includes dimensions of both memory and the number of systems in the, you know, that you have to, to tie together. And we've we've talked about the kind of framework transparency nature of this. Does that mean that all of the thinking that has to go into taking advantage of these elements happens at the DDL, you know, and or framework layer? And there's no, you know, no aspects of the you know, the problem that has to be thought through by the developer or are there still things that the developer has to be aware of in order to be able to take advantage of what you've done here? Yeah, it, it's a it's such an important point in productivity, right? Because you can run as fast as possible, but if you're going to sit there for multiple days scratching your head trying to figure out how to run fast, it doesn't <laughs> doesn't do anybody any good, right? So, so one of the one of the decisions that we made when we did the integration, for example, into TensorFlow, was to leverage the Slim library, which is a a library that kind of creates the capability to run a particular neural network. So. In that case, we have hidden the DDL capabilities completely from the developer, and they just have to use Slim. So we're trying to hide under, in general, where we can, abstractions that have been created at higher levels so that people don't have to, you know, spend days and weeks trying to figure out how to to use this technology. I think we're, we're very focused on, you know, developer productivity. It was part of the reason why we, you know, went from, you know, research endeavor to very quick engagement with our development team and wanted to get it out there in the hands of people very quickly and and why we're focused on speed because speed you know this is one of the very few areas of computing today where people sit around waiting for days you know to develop the capability it's really kind of crazy um so we want to like go from days down to hours and we want to you know get people there as quickly as possible through download and go and then also through use of some of these higher level abstractions like slim Mm -hmm. okay 
you know, one of the one of the critiques, I guess, of a, some deep learning work is that you know you hear it described as kind of overfitting on ImageNet, uh, and you reference ImageNet in your results as well. Do you? You know, what gives you confidence that these results will be generally applicable beyond, you know, a specific, you know, data set and problem? Yeah, that's a it's a it's a great thing to talk about because it gets to why we are so passionate about the key thing here being that we were showing the capabilities, what you can do with the framework, you know, only that that's the only thing that it does. Right. So so as you start to look at other classes of neural networks, the kind of computation to communication balance changes. And some classes of neural networks are known not to scale very far today, not, you know, known, you know, kind of they won't run at 256 GPUs. They run at maybe a smaller number of GPUs. So what we um, see, though, is that if you're using the type of really close to optimal communication methods that we have, that no matter what the kind of inherent capability of that neural network to scale is going to be, um, we're going to guarantee that you get you know out to as much scale as is possible. So if you're using a suboptimal communication method, you know maybe you can only get to eight or ten GPUs for other classes of neural networks. Um, we're going to push that number up by getting the communication latency to be as absolutely short as possible. So, you know, in our view, this is really about, you know, whatever the current state is of a neural network and the scientific understanding of it and the ability to scale, we're going to push that out and get that training done, done faster. Awesome. Awesome. So what other things are you working on in the, in your group? Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned the, I mentioned the large model support, which something that again, like I said, comes from the same perspective of wanting to use the available system resource and and not just sort of you know offloading work to a GPU and and being constrained um, by what that provides. So we want to go multi GPU, we want to go multi system, and we also want to be able to leverage all of the capability of a system, the full system's memory capacity. You know, we are in general along those lines also looking at acceleration in the machine learning space. We have uh, some work that we've you know published and shown. Um, some really great results on algorithms that are a bit more chatty between the GPU and the CPU and how they leverage that NVLink capability, that fat bandwidth pipe of communication between the CPU and GPU, and how they kind of get in and out of memory and, you know, use the larger capability, the CPU memory. And so those are a couple of different examples, but um, we're really trying to kind of use the system uh, to the max of its capability and tackle problems faster and enable people to explore problems that are larger. What's an example or some examples of, you know, particularly chatty machine learning tasks or libraries? Yeah. So in general, uh, things like uh, nearest neighbor computations, word to vec technology or glove, um, things that are used in semantic analysis. Those are a couple of different types of non, you know, non very deep neural network kind of things. Mm -hmm. And the, the chattiness relates to in those in those network architectures, kind of the way that state needs to be shuffled around? Yeah. So it relates to, it relates to how state has to be shuffled around, but it also relates to how quickly the compute happens and, you know, how quickly the GPU needs to be supplied with more data, for example. So that's another, that's another big component in it. The faster the compute on the GPU happens, the more likely it is that, that you need to, you know, be feeding it data more quickly and getting that data fed to it uh, more quickly can help it just kind of be brick walled 
in its execution time and not sitting around waiting for, you know, the next data to get to it. And short of actually profiling the execution of your, you know, your training jobs, uh, how do you, you know, how do you develop an intuition for what's going to be chatty? Like it's, doesn't sound like it's just the depth of the network and the deeper it is, the, you know, the harder it is, or, or is it, you know, or are there other, you know, or is it, you know, is it with, is it something else? Is it kind of, you know, memory features? Is it, are there things that, you know, you can look for to get a sense for the kind of the chattiness of your network architecture? We like to talk about kind of the, the algebra of how deep learning happens or the pipeline stages. And we look at, you know, how much data is needed in order to start a computation on the GPU. How long does it take to move that data from, you know, the storage and then into the GPU? And then how long does the GPU take to communicate? Uh, sorry, to compute. How long does the GPU take to compute? And then how long does it take to, to communicate results, either back to the CPU or back to other GPUs? So those are kind of the canonical pieces. And so we look at, you know, how much compute is there and how long will that take? And then we look at how much data has to be moved. And we look at those as clear, you know, kind of pipeline stages or or phases of of the overall work you're trying to get done. But it sounds like those are, again, kind of empirical observations of a training task as opposed to, you know, being able to look at a picture of a network and tell by some characteristic of the network that, oh, this is probably going to be, you know, chatty and this kind of technology will apply well? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question. I mean, I think that we do have the ability to estimate pretty well based on the characteristics of the neural network in a static sense. I think it's, you know, it's it's definitely a, a mix of observation and and the empirical characteristics. But, you know, in general, from from looking at the neural network, you should be able to figure out the you know volume of data, for example, that that needs to be moved to do weight updates. Um, you know how many nodes are in it, and all that other kind of stuff. And there is you know some you know you have to figure out what the uh, mini batch sizes are that are appropriate for that. So it's probably I guess the it's probably a mix of some things that can be determined, but then other things that you have to know what the training characteristics of that are, and and some of that is still somewhat experimental today. Okay, awesome. So what? Are you, you know, when you think about the, you know, this kind of work and all of the, you know, you're working on it, there are other folks working on it. Like, what do you see as the, the impact overall, you know, of it? And, you know, what, you know, what's the, what's the time frame? Do you have a, a kind of a crystal, crystal ball vision around, you know, how this, you know, impacts the way folks develop deep learning models? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because I think that there's been a lot of, you know, concern, as you mentioned, that, you know, folks are overfitting ImageNet. <laughs> and and the question really is the rate and pace that deep learning will take off on other types of data. I mean, it's been proven as highly successful for image and speech, but we're seeing so many other use cases happen. You know, we're seeing use cases across, you know, risk and fraud and predictions and forecasting and lots of different areas that, you know, to some extent, the same thing is happening where there are classical machine learning techniques that are being subsumed by the capabilities and sort of the ease of use of deep learning. And the thing that excites me in this in this capability conversation around DDL is the thought that with this type of speed up, 
that we will see those fields and those use cases develop much more quickly because with a more productive system and a more productive hardware and software solution, people will be able to discover and explore their data and define the right models for those data sets more quickly, right? So if, if, you know, if you were able to get through more of your data more quickly and you were able to churn through more models and get to higher accuracy on these new types of outcomes that you're looking for around, like I said, you know, risk and fraud and predictions and forecasting and those things, then those fields will develop and mature and those use cases will develop mature that much more quickly, right? And so, you know, this as a, an inflection point in kind of the rate and pace of, of enterprises ultimately, you know, to, to apply deep learning and increase their confidence in it and increase the accuracy in things that aren't just images and speech is ultimately what we're really excited about. And again, that, you know, that goes back to why we wanted to get it out into the hands of customers, because as a productivity enabler, and we hope that it'll change that rate and pace of you know, adoption of these techniques and a productivity of, of data scientist teams working on their own data sets. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important point and one that I hear a lot in terms of, you know, deep learning becoming deeply, you know, pun intended, I guess, associated with kind of image types of data, but there being these much broader applications and implications. Are there any particular use cases that, you know, you think of as, you know, kind of the next big killer app for deep learning? You know, I think it's hard to to necessarily forecast the next big killer app. I mean, I would say that, you know, we're seeing uh, more than you might imagine use cases across enterprise environments of even mm-hmm. speech and image because people want to be able to interact more, interact with us in a more natural way and such. So I would say that, you know, kind of two things. One, the speech and image, I think, is taking off in, in, in other industries that have other data types, but that want to use more natural interaction capabilities and such. And so that's that's one thing that, you know, is is great to see um, is the little bit more creative use, you know, in, in other contexts, especially as relates to, you know, interacting with people. The, um, you know, beyond just, you know, talking to your mobile phone, for example, right? So that's one thing. And then I think, you know, there's there's a lot of discovery and exploration right now. I think it's really hard to make a call as to, you know, what the next killer app and what the next data set is. But I think we are seeing a good degree of productivity on a lot of different types of data. And, and you know, there are very interesting things happening as well in you know, automation techniques, we have a, we have a tool set that, that helps to label data and other things like that. So as, as more folks adopt those techniques, you know, they'll be able to kind of get access to use of deep learning on more data sets. So as we use automation and, and tool sets, like we have an AI vision to enable more quick labeling of data, then, you know, that really should also, you know, help accelerate the rate at which people enter into these new spaces. Mm. The tool set you mentioned that helps with data annotation, is that open source? It's not open source, but it's also available through the Power AI frameworks and folks can try it on the Nimbix cloud. They have the Power AI stuff available there. So yeah, that's that's available for, for people to try. Yeah, it seems like that is also, you know, that uh, clearly comes up constantly in these kind of conversations and you know, when I think about the, you know, the full life cycle of, you know, these AI deep learning development projects, you know, there's certainly a lot of emphasis on the deep learning framework and the model development and training. But, you know, there's a, a much broader 
set of activities that has to take place. And very, you know, we're just starting to see projects come on, you know, open source projects come online to provide, you know, a broader platform for handling all that. Like the, the data annotation is one big area, kind of model lifecycle and versioning and, you know, production performance management and tracking is another, you know, whole set of areas. Yeah. Any thoughts on how all this stuff evolves? Yeah, I I think that the this is about maturity of the field of deep learning and it's about, you know, people moving past just fully labeled public data sets that they, you know, get online, right? And so I think, you know, the overall topic of uh, management of management of, you know, what models are being done, when, where and how, overall life cycle, uh, integration with various data sources, all those kind of things are what we see as being necessary from an enterprise environment perspective, because people will be, you know, wanting to improve the AI uh, specific to their use cases and specific to their to their data. So we have a good number of IBM tool sets out there today. Again, folks can try them. But the data science experience is a really nice uh, Jupyter Notebooks-based environment that has a lot of the features we just discussed. You know, we also have other tool sets that are available that help with, you know, data integration from various sources through our Spectrum family, for example. And then in, you know, within Power AI, you know, we have that integrated as well with with the data science experience, the DSX that I just mentioned. And we have additional capabilities that include the, you know, sort of clicker data scientist type capabilities, including your own data labeling and choosing your models and, you know, starting with some default models, other things like that. So um, we see these things, you know, that you mentioned as, you know, absolutely essential to do, a, you know, kind of more mature deep learning, which is, you know, going beyond, you know, just the, uh, you know, the fully labeled data sets that we have in the public domain. Right. Uh, and certainly enterprises need to, you know, need to get there in terms of maturity, you know, perhaps to kind of wrap things up, any words for enterprises that are earlier on in the cycle and just getting started? Yeah, I think that one of the things that I always like to try to clarify in these discussions is that, you know, our intention in showing distributed deep learning capabilities at 256 GPUs was to show the capability of what you can get if you do hardware and software optimization to show the flexibility across frameworks um, of what we had created, et cetera, and put it in people's hands. But everything that we did was done with kind of that enterprise consumer in mind, knowing that many, you know, may also be early in their journey. And so the, the DDL environment supports any number of nodes, any number of systems that someone would like to use it on. Um, it supports different types of networks. You don't have to use what we published our results on. And so, you know, what we really want to do is to kind of start with where people are at, start with the data volume that they have, start with the you know, neural network capabilities that they have and provide that ability to grow over time, you know, as they hit that stride of productivity of really figuring out how they want to do their deep learning and they want to apply it to the rest of their data sets um, as they discover new areas within their enterprise that they want to apply deep learning and replace classical techniques, perhaps they can grow out, they can scale out their, their deep learning environment, add more systems to it and still get that, you know, kind of productivity. So I think, you know, that's, that's always kind of important to point out because it's not just the taking the really long days, long jobs down to hours through use of a huge system. 
It's that no matter what the system size is, you know, uh, no matter what the data set size is, and we want to try to meet people where they're at and provide, you know, this flexibility and elasticity and capability. Great, great. Well, Hillary, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. I learned a ton about what you're doing with DDL and I'm looking forward to following the effort. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. For more information on Hillary or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 77. To follow along with this AI Summit series, visit twimlai.com slash AI Summit. Of course, you're encouraged to send along your feedback or questions to us by leaving a comment right on the show notes page or via Twitter to at Twimlai or at Sam Charrington. Thanks again to IBM Power for their support of this series. For more about the IBM Power Systems platform for enterprise AI, visit twimlai.com slash IBM Power. Thanks once again for listening and catch you next time.